Welcome to Stem Fatale, your women in science history podcast. We're back. (laughs) We're back in Emma's place. Yeah. So soon for us, but still two weeks apart for you. (laughs) Um, I'm Emily Gremlin. And I'm Emma Dilemma. And uh, this is your women in science history podcast. It is. is. Wait, did you already say that? We just want to confirm that that's what's happening. (laughs) So confirmed. (sighs) All right. Should we get started? I think so. I'm highly caffeinated and highly tired. Yeah, me too. Okay, Emlyn. (laughs) This is another stupid question. What do you mean another? They've all been gold. Oh, yeah. Okay. Emlyn, how would you describe the motion of a top using math? Like um, a spinning top. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, I would. <laughs> I would have a very high exponent. Okay. It would be very curved. That could be true. I don't know. Sine, cosine. Sine, cosine, numbers, variables, <laughs> plus, minus, equals, yeah. things like that. Good. Yeah, I don't know. Chaos. Um, no, it seems a little too ordered know. for chaos. Actually, there might be some chaos mm. involved. Nice, nice, nice. Okay. <laughs> anyway, that's about right. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> you are just as wise and intelligent as our lady today. Uh, so I feel like that's an insult <laughs> to her in a big way. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see, yeah. I guess. So the woman I'm going to tell you about today described the motion of a top using math so well that no other solution or description has ever been necessary. Nice. She (laughs) she put that in the bag. She figured it out. And the woman I'm talking about is Sofia Kovalevskaya. Oh. Um, Russian? Yeah. A Russian woman, uh, one of the first PhDs for women in Northern Europe, and possibly the first female to ever get a PhD in math. Nice. That's awesome. And her life was short but exciting. So are you ready? (laughs) I'm I'm excited for something short and exciting. Okay. I mean, there's a lot that happened. Okay. So I don't know how short the story will be. That's fine. Yeah, we'll see. Okay. So, Sophia was born under the name Sophia Korvin Krukovskaya. I'm going to try my best, these Russian pronunciations. Yep, yep. On January 15th, 1850. Ooh, old. Yeah, in Moscow, Russia. She was the second of three children to Vasily Vasilievich Korvin Krukovsky. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Did you say Vaseline? Vaseline or Vasily? Okay, I'm just thinking of Vaseline. It's kind of, it's V-A-S-I-L-Y. And uh, that was her father. Mm -hmm. And Yelizaveta Fedorovna Schubert, who was of Russian and German descent. She related to the Schuberts? Um, which ones? I don't know. I don't know. Aren't there famous Schuberts? (laughs) I think so. Uh, 
music I'm not makers? Sure. Um, oh yeah, maybe it's like Schubert or something. Mm. I don't know how to pronounce. You know it. those music makers. I do know. Yeah. I will say there's a lot of name dropping that I'll be doing. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of interesting the people that they knew. Yeah. So her father was of Russian and Polish descent and was a lieutenant general in the Imperial Russian Army. Her mother was of German descent and. Sophia's maternal grandfather and great-grandfather were both involved in the sciences and Russian science academies. Um, so Sophia's parents provided her with a diverse education from early on. They were kind of like high society mm-hmm. slash nobility okay. in Russia at that time, though one thing I read was like her dad's family kind of You know, it was one of these things where they were like, oh, yeah, this, like, second cousin of ours is nobility, so we are, too. They kind of, like... They were, like, uh, nobility adjacent. Right, but, like, tried to get in with nobility Mm. a lot, yeah. But her mother's side of the family was very well known in a lot of, like, elite academic circles. Okay. Yeah. So this, like, kind of gave this elite academic atmosphere to Sophia's young life. So, yeah. Um, So she learned English, French, and German from different, like, nannies, essentially, that they hired to look after her. And she read books by a lot of famous authors of the time. Um, uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky would come by their house a lot and was interested in her older sister, Anna. <laughs> and actually, there are a lot of reports that he proposed to her and she rejected it. Do you know how old she was to how old he was? Because I just feel like... They were... So her sister was six years older. Anna was six years older than Sophia. And it seems like Dostoevsky might have been five to ten years older than Anna. Oh, that's so reasonable. Yeah. So I don't know how old she was when he was coming around. I think she might have been a teenager, which now is bad, then was bad, but maybe more commonly accepted. I was thinking he was going to be like 45 and she was going to be like 12. I think it was like he was in his 20s and she was in her teens. Okay. Yeah. I'll accept it then. That's fine. (laughs) Back then, yeah. Back then. So, like, she was just meeting all these, like, interesting people early on in her life. She loved math, and she says that one of her earliest memories of this interest in math was looking at lecture notes that were, like, pasted on their nursery wall. Because when they were, like, redecorating their home, they ran out of wallpaper. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, so her dad just put up all these lecture notes he had taken taking classes with this, like, really famous Russian mathematician at the time. And she Hmm. would just stare at them and be, like, fascinated by them. Interesting. Yes. Super weird. And let's see. To promote her interest in math, her parents hired her a tutor to teach her, like, elementary mathematics. Uh, Joseph Ignatovich Melovich. Yeah. Okay. Pretty sure that's right. Yeah. And she also, um, they had a neighbor who was like this famous physicist, Nikolai Nikonorovich Tirtov. <laughs> and he, she, he like gave her his, a book that he wrote. Okay. And while reading it, she 
kind of rediscovered the concept of sine, like sine and cosine. Like she... What kind of book was this? I don't know. Like, I think he was just discussing these things. Oh, it wasn't like a crime novel. No, it was a physics book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay. And... That makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Like, she didn't really rediscover it, but she figured out how sign worked in the same way that the original people Mm. who discovered it figured out how it worked. And so he was like, oh my gosh, she's brilliant. He called her the new Pascal. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) And suggested to her parents that she go on to study higher math with um, this guy, Alexander Nikolovich Stranolubsky, who was a teacher and well-known advocate for higher education of women, which was not common in Russia at that time. Her dad was kind of like... One of the people in Russia, like, the status quo at the time was no higher education for women. Mm -hmm. Her dad was a little old-fashioned in that same way, but let her go do this. You shouldn't wallpaper the crib room with math. You don't want her to be interested. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of weird. Okay. So, in 1866, she was 16. Her family moved to St. Petersburg for the winter with her. And she was provided this private calculus tutoring with Stranolubsky. What? Have you heard there's a rumor in St. Petersburg? I'm not a musical person. <laughs> Have you heard what they're saying on the street? Stop, Evelyn. What is that? It's from Anastasia. Oh, right. That it's all I've been scared th- me. It's all I've been thinking about. Because of her sister Anna? Or Anna, I guess. <sighs> that, and then it's like relatively, it's Russia, but like... Yeah, a while ago. Time. Well, no, that was way before uh, maybe early 1800s Russia was on a stage. No, I think it was the, like the night. I- oh, really? Because it was, I think, World War oh. I. Oh, okay. I don't know. I saw that movie once when yeah. I was like five. It's so good. <laughs> it, I thought it was scary. Oh, it is. It's yeah. very frightening. And kind of dark. His head falls off all the time. Yeah. Being- Anyways. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I forgot Rasputin. Yeah. Okay. That makes more sense. Mm -hmm. No, this was pre then. Yeah. 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 But kind of leading into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway, she moves to St. Petersburg at the age of 16 to get this private tutoring. Around the same time, a new radical progressive political movement called nihilism was in its foundational period in Russia. It was essentially like a lot of young people in Russia wanted to reject the status quo and authority. Like it was a Tsarist state under the reign of Alexander II. Mm -hmm. Women weren't allowed to receive higher education or have like full equal rights in a lot of different ways. And essentially like young Russians were kind of grabbing onto this new, like, socialist movement, I think. I don't really know that much about the Tsarist reign of Alexander II, do you? No, do you know much about nihilism? Just that, that it's basically, like, at that point in time, they were just rejecting authority Mm -hmm. in the current way that things were running in Russia. Yeah. So Sophia was close with her sister Anna, who had become heavily involved in this movement and later went on to become a famous Russian socialist and feminist revolutionary. 
Nice. And so this, plus I think being a young woman in Russia at the time, influenced Sophia to also join this nihilist movement, which in addition to like equal rights for women included ideas like science is the most effective means of helping people and science is synonymous with truth. And just, like, education will free everybody and stuff like that. Which sounds good in theory, I guess. But, (laughs) yeah. I think, I don't know. I don't, I didn't read that much about how this became a socialist movement. And, like, how this fed into later socialist movements in Russia. Mm -hmm. But I think it was just the beginning of that. But it was called nihilist because of some author that essentially was like, oh, all these young people just, like, want to reject everything. Mm. Yeah. And they did kind of take on that name and say, say like, yeah, we do want to reject everything yeah. that's currently happening. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know something I don't know? I don't think so. Oh, okay. I just looked it up. I mean, like, I know generally what it is, but... Yeah, the rejection of all religious and moral principles. Yeah. And the belief that life is meaningless. I think that's what it's more now. Yeah, that was a different... At this time, it was kind of different from that. The historical one is the doctrine of an extreme Russian revolutionary party, which found nothing to approve of in the established social order. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much what you said. Yeah. I got nothing. So that is important because... And we'll see why. All of this. Yeah. (laughs) Despite wanting to continue in math once she was, like, college age, like, she'd been getting this tutoring and stuff, um, she couldn't attend university Mm -hmm. in Russia because women weren't allowed to. And so she decided that she wanted to go abroad to study because she knew that there were universities outside of Russia that might let her study Mm -hmm. there. And this was kind of a common thing for people her age to do, like women, well, the sort of elite academic yeah. women her age to Go do. Go to yeah. some other countries. Yeah. That, well, I'm guessing Germany. Yeah. You could get your degree, maybe. Mm. We'll see. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Also, I just want to, so when I looked up nihilism, yeah, it says nihilistic movies. Um, the Big Lebowski. Oh, Okay. I could see that, I guess. I guess so. I didn't really think it was making that kind of statement, like (laughs) a political statement, or do they just mean like nihilism in a more philosophical sense? Maybe they just mean the Big Lebowski is very meaningless. No, I don't know. I don't know what I mean. Oh, yeah. Anyways, contemplate that. I probably won't. Yeah, that's that's (laughs) cool too. Continue. Okay. Let's see. But, however, she couldn't get a passport to study abroad because she, uh, she was a woman. So she Wait, couldn't you can't get a go par- alone abroad. Oh. She needed permission from her father or from her husband. And she would need, like, kind of a male person to escort her abroad. I love it. Yeah. That's great. But she wasn't married. She was only 17, and her father would not give her permission to travel without a man. However, at the time, it was becoming common for this young, for women in this young nihilistic group, like Sophia and her sister Anna, to marry fictitiously. Ooh. Which means that they would find a man who would agree to marry them and take them abroad, but they would not in return offer any, like, wifely 
comforts or duties or whatever (laughs) of that time. Nice. Like, I'm not even sure they technically consummate the marriage. It's, like, completely a paper. Sort of like how people get married for a green card, which I don't know how often that happens, but that concept in, in a sense. So... I don't really know, like, what the guys got out of this yeah. relationship. Yeah, I don't know what guy, like, but I the guess men got out of the yeah. fictitious marriage. Except I think sometimes the women would still feel bad and kind of be a wife to them. Mm-hmm. I don't know how. Did, could they have gotten money? Like, Maybe, yeah. Was the, were there dowry-type um, deals where they might have gotten a little money from them? I don't know. Maybe, but I think it was really just like a we're young and I support your academic like ambitions kind of wanting to be helpful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Get their moms off their backs. I'm married. (laughs) Yeah. And another thing that they would do like, okay, so one woman could get this fictitious marriage and she could like then bring her friends with her. As long as they had this male chaperone oh. out of the country, kind of, they could all go. Oh. It's really, really weird. I don't know. Maybe I'm not, like, maybe I don't have all the details, but that's kind of the impression that I'm getting from this. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> I'm, I know this. I'm just imagining, like, bachelorette parties. Yeah, right. You're like, we're going to. Yeah. Like science-y bachelor. Yeah, it's, it's pretty odd. Yeah. Um, so Sophia and her sister Anna and two of their female friends started all looking for someone to marry one of them. Oh. In 1968, Sophia and Anna approached a man, Vladimir Kovalevsky, who was a friend of a friend whose their friend had been like, you know, I think this guy might do it after they approached a couple other guys who weren't interested. And he, like, upon seeing Sophia, like, fell in love with her, kind oh, of. No. That's yeah, that's not how this is supposed to work. <laughs> Even though they had wanted Anna to marry him because she was the older sister. Mm-hmm. And their parents were kind of conservative and, like, wanted her to get married first. Yeah. <laughs> so crazy. Um, however, you know, he wanted to marry Sophia. And Sophia and Anna didn't really care who got married. They just wanted to... <laughs> wanted them to be married so romantic so they convinced their parents to let him marry sophia how do you think that conversation goes when you're like hey uh i know we haven't met but we'd really like you to marry any of us don't know just one of us it doesn't matter i still don't really understand like the incentive for the husband but some um, guys are nice yeah and want to fuck the patriarchy yeah. Oh, I you were going to say something else. <laughs> I was like, no, I like, but he doesn't get I, that. I, I paused too long because I couldn't think of how, what word I wanted to use. I was like, no, that doesn't happen, though. <laughs> no. Okay. So, and he's kind of interesting, too. So, he was studying law at the time, but he also spent a lot of time translating different works of people. So, like, he was interested in paleontology and was the first person to translate and publish the works of Charles Darwin in Russia. Oh, And knew Darwin through this, like, like, that was a, Darwin was alive, Uh and he would send things to Vladimir to translate and stuff, which is You know I'm all about that. Yeah. So they got married. Sophia and Vladimir got married. 
Then in April 1969, so I'm going literally year by year. This is how interesting like every year is. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me. She, Anna, and Vladimir moved to Vienna. Their friends couldn't join them at this time, but would later travel to meet up with them. Once they got to Vienna, Anna left them because she was like, I'm out of Russia. I don't need to be with Vlad anymore. Mm -hmm. Peace. Yeah. And she left to Paris to... She went to Paris to join the young uh, socialist scene there. Okay. And this, yeah, this was technically not allowed, but she would send letters to Sophia to then send to their parents, nice. pretending that she was still living with Sophia and Vladimir. Some badass rebellion <laughs> yeah. for teenagers. Uh, anyway, pretty crazy. I once snuck out at night and went to a hotel and hung out in the lobby with my cousin. Oh. <laughs> and then we got caught. I was like, oh, God. No, like- no. It was just the only thing in the center of the town. That's the most rebellious thing I did. I once snuck out to go to a Taco Bell with some people. Yeah. We're it right- was not worth it. No. <laughs> I mean, it was fine. It was just like, oh, yeah, that's a weird thing to sneak out to do. So innocent. I know. <laughs> I was so scared, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they didn't stay in Vienna long. They moved to Heidelberg, Germany. In that same year, and after much effort, Sophia obtained permission to audit classes at the University of Heidelberg, if the professors gave her permission. So she got permission to ask permission. Yeah. Cool. And luckily, uh, there are quite a few professors that gave her permission. Uh She attended courses in physics and math under such teachers as Hermann von Helmholtz. Gustav Kirchhoff, and Robert Bunsen of Bunsen Burner fame. You're just really <laughs> just throwing those names out. It's really kind of crazy, all the people she like met in her life. And Bunsen barely let her take his lab classes and later told her next teachers that she had used her charm to trick him into letting her take his class. <laughs> Which you. I don't know if that was a joke or like, uh, that's how he actually felt. Yeah. <laughs> Vladimir, meanwhile, kept up his end of the bargain, kind of, and left Sophia to do her studies. Nice. And went to get his PhD in paleontology at the University of Jena or Henna? I don't know how you'd say that. J-E-N-A in German. No idea. Yeah. So later that same year, they traveled to London, Vladimir and Sophia. So they were friends. Mm -hmm. Like, they had... A relationship of some weird sort. They traveled to London together to visit with various colleagues and friends. While there, Vladimir hung out with Thomas Huxley and Charles Darwin. Nice. (laughs) Whose works he was translating. And Sophia hung out with writer George Eliot, the author of Middlemarch. Oh, okay. A.K.A. Mary Ann Evans. She wrote under this, like, male pen name. And... With Elliot slash Evan, she attended a lecture by philosopher and biologist Herbert Spencer, who came up with the survival of the fittest idea. Uh Uh-huh. And um, Sophia got into a debate with Spencer about women's capacity for abstract thought (laughs) at this lecture. Okay. Because he was arguing that women, like, yeah, are inferior to men and things in various ways. Pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's fun. So, let's see. You know, that was just a brief period of time. She went back to University of Heidelberg and continued to take classes. In 1870, she 
decided she kind of learned enough from that school and wanted more education. And she took the advice from her teachers there to move to Berlin and start taking lessons with Carl Weierstrauss, who supposedly is also known as the father of mathematical analysis. Sure. But I, I believe that, but uh, I yeah. wouldn't know. No, yeah. I'll she, accept it. <laughs> um, so she moved to Berlin, but they didn't give her permission to take co- classes or audit classes there. Without her hubby or with her hubby? Uh, without her hub. Hmm. He was still at the other university getting his PhD. Um, So she decided to convince, try to convince Carl Weierstrauss to give her private lessons. With her charms, her wily charms or whatever uh, Bunsen said. Yeah, which is weird because like everything describes her as very kind of shy Mm -hmm. and a little like, I don't know, like very feminine, I guess, and shy for that time. Those are the ones you got to watch out for. I know. Those are the ones so whose it's like, but then, powers are strongest. In the next sentence, they're like, and we think this is how she like won over all these like, which is like, what? Her feminine silence. <laughs> I know. I don't, I didn't really understand that, but. um, Okay. She approached Carl Weierstrauss, who didn't want to teach her because she was a woman. So to scare her away, he gave her a bunch of super difficult problems to work out. Fun. And thinking, like, she wouldn't be able to do it. Mm-hmm. But she did them, and she did them really well, and he was super impressed. And so he began, he decided, yet, yeah, like, yeah, I will give you private lectures. And these were, like, akin to the ones he gave in his larger classes at the university. And th- they developed from here, like, a lifelong friendship mm-hmm. and advisor-mentee relationship. And she was one of his favorite students ever. That's how you, you win them <laughs> over with your feminine charms. Your feminine charms are just like I'm being good awesome. at that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, maybe she was just really smart. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so he lectured her in topics like elliptical functions, analysis, and calculus. And... Yeah, at the same time, her friend from Russia, Julia Lermontova, came to live with her and study chemistry at the university as well. And it seems like she was allowed to take classes. So I don't really understand. Maybe different departments or something. Yeah. In 1871, she and her husband Vladimir snuck into Paris briefly to help her sister Anna, who had become an outspoken feminist and socialist leader in Paris... At the time, she was heavily involved in what was called the Paris Commune. Have you ever heard of that? No. Okay, I hadn't either, but I tried to kind of... It seems like a very volatile time in France. Yeah. It was right at the end of the Franco-Prussian roar, war. Um, and roar. And roar. Mm-hmm. Lots of roaring. Yeah. And, okay, the Paris Commune was like a weird two-month period of time in France in which a socialist government ruled Paris, even though France was not socialist, and under the rule of the Third Republic, which the commune refused to recognize. <laughs> so just Paris was kind of taken over? Yeah, by yeah. like the socialist, like weird group that Anna was like a big part of, Sophia's sister. Interesting. Yeah. It was, it seems really weird. So. She, Anna was there with her French kind of husband, Victor Jacquard. So they like wanted to be married, but couldn't technically be married for some reason at that point. 
or maybe they'd gotten kind of married, like not quite legally, but had some kind of ceremony, but never signed any papers. I can't really tell. Everything's like, he was almost her husband. (laughs) I'm like, does that mean boyfriend or partner, I guess? I don't know. So, and Victor and Anna were both, like, super involved in the uprising in Paris, which the French army was trying to fight against and, like, killing people and stuff. So, Sophia and Vladimir snuck in from Germany to help attend to injured people that were fighting against the French army. They, like, took a rowboat across. From where to? The German, like, at the German border, they wouldn't let them cross into France, so they snuck over on a little rowboat they found. (laughs) I'm like, oh, my God. Um, So they helped out for, like, a couple weeks, but then returned to Germany after Anna was like, I think we're doing better now. But then right after that, the commune fell. And then Anna and Victor were being like, chased by police. Anna was able to escape to London to go stay with her friend Karl Marx. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, that guy. Her friend. (laughs) Which, it's just, like, I don't even understand, like, how all these people are connected. Yeah. And then, at this point, Sophia had to, but Victor was still there, and the French government was just hanging people they thought were him and were, like, out for his execution. Oh, God. They finally caught him and were going to execute him. But Sophia went to her father and was like, look, Anna's almost husband is about to be executed. Can you help? Uh Because he was this big army general. And he was like, what? My daughter's living in Paris with this guy and doing all these (laughs) things, and you're not really living with your husband? And what... Like, oh, my daughters. My my poor impressionable daughters. (laughs) But he did go to France and helped get Victor clemency. So Victor was able to escape. And then they finally officially got married under their fathers. I feel very bad for the people who weren't Victor. I know, right? But who were uh, hung Like, under, yeah, or who were following Victor, Uh but didn't have the connections Victor had. That's always the way it is. Yeah. So that was, like, a very dramatic period of time. Sounds like it. And it's kind of, like, true just of her life, though, I guess. So she returned to Berlin and continued studying math with Weierstrass. Over the next three years, he started to lobby the University of Göttingen to give her a doctorate, which is not his university, I don't know why he thought they might give her a doctorate and not a different university. So, yeah, he was, like, asking them to give her a doctorate. Finally, in 1874, she was allowed to present three papers to the university as her doctoral dissertation. The first one was about partial differential equations. This is where I start, my eyes start glazing over... I try try my best. Okay. And described what is now known as the Cauchy-Kovalevskaya theorem, mm-hmm. um, which proves the existence and anal- analyticity of local solutions to partial differential equations under suitable defined initial conditions. Okay. I think this means that she figured out how to apply an analytic functions to partial differential equations, which nobody had done yet. 
Honestly, a lot of this is just theoretical math. Mm -hmm. So I think just adding to that adds to everything in the field, basically. Um, I didn't read a lot of like direct applications of any of her research, Mm. except that it was like, this is the first time anyone's done this. Or like, this solved this problem that mathematicians have been trying to solve for a long time or things like that. Which, I mean, I'm sure is ap- applied in some sort of engineering way, but yeah. it, there were no, like... This directly. Yeah, yeah. Nothing like that that yeah. I could find. Tell me more. Okay. So, her second paper was on Saturn's rings, okay. which seemed to be kind of like a, a pet project of hers, rather than a problem that Weierstrass had given her to mm-hmm. solve. Like, she was just randomly interested in this one thing. And in this paper, she proved that Saturn's rings were egg-shaped ovals, symmetric about a single point. Though, I don't think that's true because <laughs> because she was using assumptions that were incorrect gotcha. in order to do this mathematical proof. Okay. So, by prove, I mean a mathematical proof, yeah. not like yeah. a experiment or something, yeah. you know. And her third paper described a simpler way to calculate elliptical integrals than prior methods, I think. Okay. So it dealt, in more technical terms, it dealt with reduction of a class of abelian integrals of the third rank to elliptic integrals. So she was reducing some equations to these other equations. And from what I read, it was like this... These equations were way, like, faster and simpler to use than previous equations. Okay. Cool. So. She figured out that you could (laughs) simplify it and it was still. Still right. Yeah. Yeah. So after Weierstrass succeeded in having her exempted from the university's oral examinations because she was really shy and because she'd never, like, taken a test. Or had to, like, even been in a class really with other people. Like, that was really stressful and would have been kind of unfair in a sense. Um, Yeah, you can't not... You can't prevent people from having the opportunity to gain those skills and then expect them to have those skills. Yeah, right. Like, you either need to have let them do it all or... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he got her exempt from that, and then they gave her a doctorate in mathematics summa cum laude. And this made her the first woman to be awarded a doctorate at a Northern European university and the first woman to be awarded a doctorate in mathematics. Nice. Which is pretty cool. That's awesome. And so after receiving her doctorate, she tried to look for professor positions in Germany, even offering to lecture for free. But no one would hire her because she was a woman. So she and Vladimir moved back to Russia in that same year. And she tried to look for positions there and she couldn't find... They also wouldn't let her... I like that they still, like, stayed together. I know. It's it's an odd marriage, for sure. But he was in love with her. So yeah, but like he was willing to just let her be herself in every single way. Well, that's what true like. love is, yeah. right? Um, he couldn't find professor positions either because of his radical views, I guess. Because he was a nihilist. 
I think so. Or socialist? I think, I don't know, it just said radical, which probably meant this nihilist socialist movement. So they had very little money once they returned to Russia because they couldn't get jobs. Um, So Vladimir started to get involved in real estate development, like buying homes and trying to build them up and then sell them, except people weren't really, I know, it's like, that was a thing in the 1800s. Like, Yeah, it's bizarre. Yeah. And he also got involved in some shady dealings with the oil industry. Okay. Well, Sophia took up science writing and theater review for a paper in St. Petersburg. Some bizarre, <laughs> like, shift. Yeah. And during this time, she did no math and stopped doing research Um, At some point, they decided to finally consummate their marriage and live together as a married couple. I don't know. Does that mean? I don't know. Okay. But. It's none of our business. In 1878, Sophia gave birth to their daughter. Well, I think that's pretty uh, self-evident. Who was also named Sophia, but called Fufa as a nickname, which is cute. That's cute. Yeah. And while pregnant, she sort of started getting interested in math again, like going back here and there. Pregnancy will do that. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> some people want to eat pickles. Some people want to solve people want to do math. Partial yeah. differential equations. In 1880, a student of Weir Strauss, her advisor, um, Gosta Mitag Leffler, Invited her, he was like visiting St. Petersburg and had heard about her because he was now a student of her former advisor. And he invited her to speak about Abelian integrals to a group of Russian naturalists and physicians while he was visiting Russia. So he's a German guy who has the same advisor as her. He's traveling to Russia. And Weierstrass this whole time had been like, you got to get back into math, Sophia. Like, what are you doing? Like, you're so brilliant, kind of. Mm-hmm. And so I think he kind of sent Gosta in a way to be like, you know, try and see if you can rub, rub her up again. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, so, and she did go speak to that group. And that after that became excited to like get back into research and stuff. And she attempted over and over again to get Vladimir interested in the sciences again, but eventually decided to leave him and go abroad without him to work on stuff with Weirstrass again. And she temporarily left her child with friends and family, but came back to get Fufa in 1981. So she still couldn't really find a job. She was just like working and she was just kind of traveling and working with different people and studying, I guess. It's a little confusing to me, the timeline here. Yeah. I like that he's like, you really should get back into maths. We have no jobs for you. But yeah, but you should, you do, should that. do that on your free time. So after picking up her daughter, she eventually went back to St. Petersburg to leave her daughter with her family mm-hmm. and then go back to Germany. Okay. I don't know if she ever, like, raised her daughter after that. There's no mention of her, really. In 1883, so she had been basically gone for about two or three years from from Russia permanently. Mm -hmm. But in 1883, her husband, Vladimir, who had always suffered from severe mood swings, became more unstable and under threat of prosecution 
for his role in some shady stock business with the oil company, he committed suicide. Okay, that's not where I thought this was going to go. Oh. But no, he did not murder her. That's good. I mean, it's not good, but no. I mean, it's good he didn't murder her. But. Yeah, that is good. Yeah. So she was, I mean, she's 33 at this point. Okay. Yeah. And I think he was a few years older than her, but he had felt just so like they were bankrupt essentially. Mm. And I think he felt responsible and also was dealing with his own probably mental illness or something yeah so that's sad pretty sad and she was devastated by his death and always blamed herself but tried to basically drown her grief and work from that point on in 1884 gosta uh leffler the student who had come Come to to russia yeah who she'd been working with now for a few years um got her a five-year position as Extraordinary Professor. Is that the title? <laughs> yeah. Nice. Which is now known as Assistant Professor, which I feel like Extraordinary is way better. I know. In Switzerland. Oh, wait. Why didn't I write down? Yeah. Appointed this position at Stockholm University and at the same time became editor of a journal, Acta Mathematica, making her one of the first female science journal editors. When she was appointed this professor position, one newspaper welcomed her as a princess of science, to which she responded, a princess, if only they would assign me a salary. (laughs) So I don't think she was even getting paid to do this work. That doesn't seem extraordinary. Yeah. And her most outspoken Swedish adversary was the playwright August Strindberg, who said, a female professor of mathematics is a pernicious and unpleasant phenomenon. Even, one might say, a monstrosity. In her invitation to a country where there are so many male mathematicians far superior in learning to her can be only explained by the gallery gallantry of the Swedes towards the female sex. Fuck you! Yeah, like, why? Just mind your own business if that's how you feel. Um, she began to feel overworked and kind of bored by her work in Stockholm, um, feeling that she wasn't surrounded by the same intellectual enthusiasm as other places she had lived. So she began to write plays with, <laughs> <laughs> with, uh, Gosta's sister and Charlotte Lefner Edgren. And she also started writing short stories and poems. She sounds like my kind of person of just like, yeah, I'm going to do this now for a bit. I can't. Yeah, yeah. She is, she's very like... Um, Well-rounded. Yeah, I guess. And kind of, I mean, privilege in a sense of just being like, I just want to study what I want to study yeah. and do what I want to do and nothing's going to stop me, which is also really cool mm-hmm. that she didn't... There were a lot of things that were trying to stop her yeah. and, and they didn't. So that's also cool. Um, let's see. Her sister died in 1887, which did not really help this kind of, like, tumultuous time for her, like, emotional time, feeling lonely in in Sweden. However, in 1888, the French Academy of Sciences put out a call for submissions to a competition for um, seeing who could mathematically describe a new kind of top. 
Like the spinning tops. Uh-huh. Yeah. A new kind of top. Right. Or, so this is um, a case of rotary motion around a fixed object, uh-huh. basically. So two people, um, you, Leonard Euler and Joseph Louis Lagrange, had both dis- described two types of tops. Euler described tops where the fixed point is the center of gravity of the object. Mm-hmm. And Lagrange described a top um, in which the fixed point is where the object touches the ground, which are like the ones we spin, Uh like the toys. And so this competition was for a different kind of top and like a mathematical description of that kind of top. Okay. Which I still don't entirely understand. Yeah, what other, like, I'm trying to just imagine what, what is a top besides one where it spins on... The point that touches well, the ground. I'll tell you, but it is confusing. Okay. <laughs> so Sophia, uh, who was going through a lot at that time, submitted a draft of her work. She didn't even submit a final thing, but she was like, I think this is it. Like, whatever. I'm just going to submit it, even though I don't finish. And she described a new case in which the motion can be analyzed rather than being totally chaotic. In her case, two of the three moments of inertia are the same, and the third is half their size. And the fixed point is not out on an extremity. <laughs> so it's not out on an extremity. Does that mean it's inside the top? Are these questions I shouldn't ask you? Yeah. Okay. I Honestly, I looked this up a lot. Let me see. Here's another description. Do we have a drawing? She... Develop this, yeah, I am including like a mathematical drawing and okay. visualization of this, which okay. is still just for math experts, okay. kind of, but you can look at it and be like, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so she developed the theory for an unsymmetrical body where the center of its mass is not on an axis in the body. What was essential about her discovery was that she was basically describing any top, I think. Like, she found a general mathematical description of a top. So if I think about a top, I've got it correct. Yeah. It's a subset of whatever she's talking yeah. about. Okay. So someone said, for all intents and purposes, she had done as much work on this subject as it was possible to do. And no one has ever found another, like, different case of tops that wouldn't fit into her like discovery like sense <laughs> i know it's really hard to understand <laughs> and it essentially like it's just a series of equations yeah. that describe everything about any top okay which is just like all right yeah. i guess that's like cool yeah. yeah i like when nobody can do it better than yeah you And this paper, and she won the prize. Nice. And this paper was so highly regarded that they increased the prize money from 3,000 to 5,000 francs. They were like, like, post hoc? (laughs) Yeah. They were like, this is so good. Her draft was so good. And they all submitted it anonymously, Uh too, which who knows if they had known she was a woman. That's cool. But anyway, and this is a. This was basically the biggest, like, discovery of her lifetime. And, nice. Uh, yeah, kind of the pinnacle of her career. Okay, so after this, she became an ordinary professor. 
at the Stockholm University, which is equivalent to a full professor, but sounds less cool than extraordinary professor. So I guess extraordinary is just outside of ordinary, so they're not quite ordinary yet. Yeah. It seems... Maybe it meant something kind of different then, or maybe the translation isn't quite right. Maybe it's lost in translation a bit. Um, however, she still wanted to move back to Paris or Russia. She just didn't really like Stockholm, I don't think. She per, per, she partitioned, she petitioned Russia to allow her to join their Academy of Sciences. And after a while, they kind of let her join, <laughs> naming her a woman corresponding member, member, but would not give her full membership. So she couldn't attend meetings or in or get the salary that full members got. So what did she get? I don't know. Just being that able title? to say, yeah. That same year, she fell in love with a man, Maxim Kovalevsky. Does that name sound familiar at all? It does. It's her husband's name, last name. He was a distant relative of her late <laughs> husband. And an eminent Russian sociologist and historian. And she at first refused to marry him because she did not want to sacrifice her career to settle down and live with someone. He uh-huh. lived in Russia. Uh-huh. And she knew she couldn't get a job there, basically. And she thought, and she was like, no, my math career is too important to me to, like, marry you and go live with you. Mm-hmm. And, um, but she, they would still visit each other and they had this, like, romance. Yeah. And... Okay. 1891, she was on vacation in Nice with Maxim when she developed pneumonia after contracting influenza. And when she returned from the vacation, she said that she would give up her professor job to be with him um, in Russia. However, she died a few days later at the age of 41. Do you think she knew? I don't know. I think she was really sick. Yeah. Definitely. And maybe just thinking like, this thing is more important to yeah. me or something. Yeah. Not that, like, she made a promise she knew she wasn't going to keep. Oh, oh, or that. Maybe. Pro- probably not. I don't know. It's hard to say. Yeah. That's sad. Yeah. Okay. 41. But, but a back lot in the day, A lot happened. And back in the day, that's not that yeah. crazy young. And, yeah. So she has two sort of autobiographical works that I didn't, like get a chance to read but if anyone's more interested in so she like wrote a ton of books i guess and two of them were kind of about her life Uh one is called a russian childhood and one is called nihilist girl (laughs) yeah and they both contain a lot of biographical elements at the very least that's cool yeah so anyway that is sophia kovalevsky nice i like (laughs) that but is her last name based is her la- yeah? Is her last name from her first husband? No, it's yes, yes. Because she, she never, never married. married Maxim. Okay, yeah. But it would have been convenient. She would have had to change her last I name. I know. <laughs> uh, anyway, such an interesting yeah, life, man. The name dropping. Dar- some Darwin, some Mark. I know Dostoevsky. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Shall we? Yeah. Work, 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 work. All right, this is the women who work section where we yeah. talk about badass ladies making history today. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and so mine's a quick shout out, but it's actually a we haven't done a research article in a while. Yeah. So yeah. this is a real quick one. 
So my shout out goes to Evelina Tacconelli and Maria Deletta Pisani from the Department of Diagnostic and Public Health at the University of Verona, Italy. Oh my gosh. Uh, And they wrote a paper this month in The Lancet on the public health burden of antimicrobial resistance. Oh, cool. Nice. And so they did an evaluation of the public health burden, which is a thing that's needed to drive policy interventions. And so how they did this was they used estimates of clinical benchmarks, including morbidity and mortality, uh, economic indicators such as direct costs, um, also use of resources to try to help these people who then end up dying, and and drug expenditures, how much they're... actually using four drugs wow that don't end up working and so from i guess if you're working on disease burden you calculate uh disability adjusted life years that's kind of what they're oh my gosh because i think it incorporates mortality and morbidity so yeah that makes yeah. sense um and so they found that disability adjusted life years the rate was 170 people I guess essentially die per ten uh, per one hundred thousand, which is similar to the combined burden of HIV, influenza, and tuberculosis. Oh my god, I had no idea. Yeah, so the I think they did multiple years, and it's increased every year the burden of antimicrobial resistance. Yeah, which makes sense. Yeah, and yeah, the burden has doubled since two thousand seven. Oof, and it's highest in infants and older people. Yeah, as you might expect. And so uh, they provide a variety of international measures that you could they could use to cope with this health crisis. Um, so it was just an interesting article and really kind of yeah. pinpointed the actual burden because we talk about like bacterial right. resistance to all of these drugs, but I don't think people quantify it that often and like yeah. how it's increasing and the actual like cost, yeah, like including both like health and economics yeah totally and why it's such a big deal so shout out to them oh so scary but i'm glad they're doing that i hope yeah it does seem like antibiotics are still used way too much like Mm -hmm. especially in food in the food industry like there should be a lot of more policy change and like i think they suggested also monitoring how many individuals you get who get antibiotic resistance within an area to kind of oh. not necessarily quarantine but yeah. actually keeping track of spatially where these events are occurring. Oh, that and apparently would be really interesting. The the um just in terms of like very large spatial scale, yeah. Greece and Italy are the most impacted in the EU. Oh, wow. From, huh. I wonder why. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if... I mean, I think it's partially health infrastructure, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so I thought that was cool and very... Yeah, that's really interesting. ...relevant. So you can go check that out, The Lancet. It's open access if you want to... Yeah, nice. ...read more details, more depressing details, (laughs) more frightening. I almost talked about... There's another study that's... They found a new antibiotic for gonorrhea. Oh my gosh. That works. Because I think... There's only one antibiotic at this point that works for gonorrhea. So I was going to have a keep your junk safe section, but (laughs) I thought this was... Yeah. Yeah. Gonorrhea was becoming pretty incurable. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad they... Yeah. So there's another. There's another. Yay. Good. Yay. Keep your junk safe. Keep your junk safe. Put your junk in that box. 
That's it. That's all I've got. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone, yeah. for listening. Uh, happy belated Thanksgiving. Uh-huh. I want to thank uh, Caitlin Friesen for all her awesome art of these Stemness ladies. Ooh. And Artichoke for our theme song. Uh, if you like what we're doing, please rate, review, subscribe. Yeah. It helps people find us. And um, I would say go stimulate, stimulate yourself. yourself. Bye. Bye.